Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Welcome to uh, Season 2, Episode 28 of Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, and we are, uh, as Stephen Colbert says, live on tape today from the Simply Jesus Gathering in the Vail Valley of Colorado. Uh, I have, uh, as a guest with me today, uh, one of the most intriguing, impactful people I've ever met in my adult life of pursuing Jesus. His name is Conrad Gempf. I'll let him introduce himself in just a second, but right now, just to give you a context, we are literally sitting on the kind of bunkhouse porch of a western ranch looking out at the mountains and huge uh, fields with horses everywhere and llamas and cows and all kinds of stuff so you might hear some of that in the background even roosters crowing in the background you might hear a little of that too um, but that's where we are so that you have a sense of our setting and conrad and i are here to not only be participants in the simply jesus gathering but we're both speaking and Conrad just spoke just before lunch and I grabbed him to talk about uh, doubt. So this month we're, we're focused on doubt in a variety of ways and uh, today we're going to explore doubt in the story of Jesus and in his ministry. So Conrad, could you uh, just introduce yourself and give them a sense of who you are and what you do? My name is Conrad, Conrad Gempf. I'm originally from the east coast of the states and studied uh, biblical studies at Gordon College and then Boston University, then flew across the ocean to do my PhD with Howard Marshall in the University of Aberdeen. And I've stayed across the ocean because I found a job at London Bible College, which is now called London School of Theology. I teach New Testament there and have done for too many years. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you just finished talking about this fascinating story, one of the most fascinating stories of Jesus, because it's it's typically unpredictable, which is a good description of Jesus. But he's approached by a man named Jairus, who's a synagogue leader, whose daughter is dying. And he convinces Jesus to go to his house to heal his daughter. And along the way, he is waylaid by a woman who is desperate for healing. And uh, I, I would love for you to kind of um, give your brief unpacking of that story as it relates to doubt. Where... Where are we in that story, and where does doubt show up in that story? Well, it's a great story to talk about doubt because it doesn't look like it. Jesus had a way of doing two things at once, and and Mark seems to love that. So Mark records lots of, we call them Mark and Sandwiches, where one <laughs> story starts, and then another story happens, and then the first story ends. And this is one of them. Hmm. Everybody loves the story about the woman who has faith in Jesus and goes to touch his hem and then tries to sneak away again. But it's really significant to me, and it's really significant for the concept of doubt, that it's sandwiched in there. Because it means, if it happened this way, and I think it did, it means that Jairus gets a yes from Jesus and then has to stand around tapping his feet and looking at his, the sundial on his wrist, trying to figure out I thought Jesus said, what's what's happening? And there are lots of instances of this, actually, throughout. I think of uh, 
something I talked about last year at Simply Jesus, which is the disciples going back to fishing after Jesus died, and they weren't sure what was going on with the resurrection, and they'd been fishing all night and caught nothing, and Jairus has thought he got what he wanted, but there he is waiting, and before anything good happens, one of the servants comes from the house and says, your daughter's dead, don't bother the teacher anymore. And Jairus is in a position, and we're in the position of Jesus having said yes to us, but all the things he promised, they seem to be taking a heck of a long time. <laughs> and is it for real or not? John the Baptist even had this doubt, right? You, you yeah. probably talked about this in your series. I'd be surprised from if you From had. prison when he's wondering, yeah. is he really the Messiah? He's hearing plates rattling in the kitchen. And, <laughs> and he's saying to Jesus, you, you preach that the, the captives will be set free. Well, hello, here I am. You know, what I loved about what you did with this story is that I, you with said... With the Jairus story. Yeah, what you said is, we, we, we often, when we read a story like this, we try to identify with whoever we can identify in the story, but we don't ever identify with Jairus because Jairus is sort of a bit player in this whole story, according to the fast way that we read this story. But actually, he's the most like us of anyone in the story because he is, I, I loved what you said, you're gonna have to repeat this because I'm, I'm about to botch it, but that Jesus says yes to what we ask him, and then he doesn't do it. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of rhythm? Because I think it's a very familiar rhythm for us. It I found it a wild story. I, I love to say to people, Jesus never does what you expect him to do. And this parable, this um, miracle story, the two miracle stories, showed me that I was wrong to say that. Because in both cases, Jesus does exactly what the people think they want. Just doesn't stop there or doesn't start there or doesn't do it exactly. <laughs> so Jairus actually asks, we know that Jesus can heal from a distance without touching anybody. Jesus doesn't do that with Jairus. Instead, Jairus has asked, I want you to come to my house, lay hands on my daughter so that she can live again. And Jesus does that. He, go he doesn't heal at a distance. He goes to the house and he lays hands, he touches her and tells her to stand up. And she does. And with a woman with the, with the issue of blood, she thinks that she can be healed by touching the hem of his garment which those of us who know Jesus the way that we know Jesus now know that that's probably not the way that Jesus wants to be approached. <laughs> Snuck up on from behind, <laughs> touching clothes is not how we think of Jesus dealing with people. But he doesn't stop and correct her and say, no, if you want to be healed, you need to talk to me and I talk to you and together. We... He, he does what they want. But, but for Jairus, he doesn't do it right away. Hmm. And he... And that's us. That's most of the people here in, in this building. It's not people everywhere. I think there are people that he's dealing with right away. Yeah. And But we are most like Jairus, too, because he's a religious guy. He's a professional, almost. He knows what's been going on with Judaism. He's been in touch with God for a long time. And it's those people sometimes that Jesus asks more of, understandably and asks them to wait while he deals with the people who just don't understand and want to touch hems. And the, and the waiting is like miracle grow or like a, like a hydroponic greenhouse for <laughs> doubt. 
Like waiting, yeah. waiting yeah. is the fuel that you throw on the fire of doubt because the longer you yes. wait, what what's happening, I think, in us when we are waiting is we are questioning the heart of Jesus because if he says yes to something and then doesn't appear to do it, what it gets at is the cause-effect aspect of our relationship with him. And even in our human relationships, if somebody consistently doesn't come through, it when they say they're going to, it undermines our trust unless you're convinced about the heart of the person. Well, it's, it's like with my wife, if she does something that I... I like I like I'm away from home right now and she has a, a lung disease. So she's not supposed to go into our unfinished basement and do anything down there because there's stuff in the basement that's not good for her. So I found out that she was planning to go clean the basement while I was gone without telling me. So I implored her before I left, please don't do this. When I get home, I'll clean the basement, I promise. But I don't know what she's doing right now. And that issue really gets to my belief about her heart or not and that's what seeds doubt in there and I think in these places of waiting this is what gets accessed in us is our doubt about the heart of Jesus well I, I think that's right I'm sure there's a lot of your listeners who that would be the doubt but for some of us it's even sneakier than that hmm. because some of us know that it's dumb to doubt the heart of Jesus but some of us I mean, we all know that, but we do it anyway. But some of us begin to doubt ourselves. Did we understand right what Jesus said? Oh, yeah. Is that really something Jesus said to me, or was he looking past me and talking to somebody else? Is it, Or is it my hopeful thinking that that's what Jesus said? I think for, for Christians in, in the West in particular, we have a lot of self-doubt. And, and waiting is a breeding ground for that as well. Yeah. Just just like you said. I, and, it, and it amounts to the same thing. Yeah. In, in fact, it's probably a sneaky way of doubting the heart of Jesus. Yeah, because if you doubt your you doubt yourself by extension, it's already wrecking the trust relationship you have with Jesus because it's a two-way relationship. So, yeah. It's I, a two-way relationship. And one of the best things for me about the about Simply Jesus so far was a talk this morning from... from um, uh, Carlos Rodriguez, where he talked about the sending out of the seventy, yeah, and how how Jesus believed in them. It's not just they believed in Jesus, yeah, but Jesus believed in them, yeah. And fortunately, they didn't have much waiting to do, so there wasn't a lot of doubt <laughs> crept in. Although it is told, interestingly, it's told very much in the same uh, sandwich style, where the seventy go out, something else happens, and then the seventy come back, yeah. And, and they've been successful. But we doubt the heart of Jesus when we doubt that he really said that to us, that he really loves, that he could really love us, that he yeah. really is going to take care of us somehow. Yeah. That sounds like it, it's a way of telling ourselves we're doubting ourselves, we're not doubting Jesus, but it really is doubting Jesus. Yeah, that's Jesus good. It is, and us. you're right. It's a sneaky way. So our uh, when we think about Jesus' relationship to doubt, we often kind of in a surface way go to quote-unquote doubting Thomas who's been saddled with that for history for just doing what any one of us would do yes. in his shoes yeah. um, but he so we have this impression because of this encounter Jesus has with Thomas that he's really uh, is uh, treats doubt with severity because we don't get a lot of tonal uh, context 
I, I often like to imagine Jesus saying everything he said to Thomas in that scene with a big smile on his face instead of wow. a stern. Because if he's smiling or laughing, how would that change the impact of what he's saying to Thomas? I, I my If I had to roll the dice, I would say that Jesus was probably smiling when he said that to Thomas. Just total guess. But but the the issue is that our default setting is that well, Jesus must be severe because he's severe about doubt. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you think Jesus' relationship with doubt is. I think he is severe about what he sees and lapses in the relationship with him. Hmm. And doubt certainly can cause that. I think that um, it's, not just, uh, it's not just Thomas who does this, but we're, we are also very hard on Peter and the others yes. who don't want to believe Jesus when he says, I have to die. And we sometimes think of that as doubt. But there, Jesus is very severe with that as well. Um, and it's, a, it's not exactly doubt. It's, or maybe it's a different kind of doubt than, than, than we've been thinking about so far. It's a lack of trust in the surprising nature of Jesus. Mm. The, one of the weirdest things is when Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat and they wake him up to calm the storm mm -hmm. and he turns on them and says, why were you, you know, where's your faith? And that story always causes me to scratch my head and say, but they came to you to help with this. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? <laughs> Aren't we supposed to come to Jesus and say, help us, there's a storm. Why then is he? And it's not exactly that they doubted he could do something about it. It's that they doubted his care for them in the relationship. So it's the fact, probably, I, I think, that they came to him not with, help us, there's a storm, but don't you care that we're going to drown? Yeah. And and doubting the relationship yes. rather than his power yeah. is, a, is another tricky way of getting around it. You know, there's a, it feels like a, this just popped into my head. There's a kind of a corollary to that. I don't think I've ever talked about this before, but there's a kind of doubt that's relative to a, a true appreciation for the reality of Jesus and what he's about in our lives. I just was talking with somebody about this the other day. It would be fine if what Jesus was mostly about was an empathetic response to my story, but my experience of him is he wants to transform me. Yeah. And he uses leverage very often to do that. And so like C.S. Lewis said, he's a dangerous but good. And it's that dangerous part that really in this in the pragmatic everyday life creates doubt in me like yeah 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 I know you love me and want to transform me mm -hmm. but I don't like the leverage all the time is, is today going to be a day of leverage because I'd really like a break from that I'd like a little less of that kind of love Jesus so um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that aspect of our relationship Gosh. with him that's one of my that reminds me of one of my favorite stories where Jesus uses a brusque takes a very brusque instead of a very giving nature with a woman and it reminds me of something you said earlier about Thomas I'm convinced that Jesus does this with a smile behind his just behind his face there's a woman a Syrophoenician woman who, oh it's my favorite story another woman yeah. whose, whose daughter is in trouble and and asks for help from Jesus and because she's a Gentile apparently Jesus apparently refuses her, which is what the disciples would have wanted him to do, which is one of all the Jews would have wanted him to do. But
he in essence calls her a dog it's not right to feed the dogs the oh it's but, so brutal <laughs> but she's up to the challenge yeah and she comes back and yep. speaks talks back to Jesus yep and the fact I'm sure in my heart that Jesus says this so that she'll talk back to him mm -hmm. and loves the talking back to him there is a woman who doesn't have doubt in her in Jesus or in herself and you've just said exactly the the core of what I was trying to say about what creates fear and doubt because if he will take that kind of risk with someone because that is a monumental risk he's taking with her yeah. and I think he takes it because he studies people he does I don't I think he has far less sort of uh, um, he uses his supernatural spidey gifts less than we think. I think he, he studies people well, and he decided to do this with her. Yeah. But I'm inside the voice is, if he decided to do this with her, what would keep him from doing something like that with me? And, oh, he has done that with me. Yes. So it creates a kind of a, I know he likes this because my feet are never on level ground in this kind of relationship. I'm always a little off kilter because of what he's doing in my life. And yet I, I hate being off kilter and it and it feels like a, a low level tension <laughs> to be in relationship with Jesus because he has designs on me. And he's gonna take you to places where the ground isn't level. Yes. And, and so does some of this to prepare, in this case, not only the woman, but to prepare the disciples. So mm. the disciples are seeing her, him being rough with someone and then enjoying her pushing back in a way that's faith. It's one of the weirdest things about our God is he wants us to push back in faith. He's always wanted this from Old Testament times when there were arguments about how many people you'd need to save the city. The haggling back and forth. What if there are 40 good people? Okay, <laughs> 40. <laughs> you know, Zeus or some other God just would say, what are you talking? And, you know, zap you with a lightning bolt for yeah. arguing with him. Right. But God seems to love to be argued with. Like... Well, because he wants a relationship with what us. is what is the practical purpose of that that that's the next question if if if, if this is true and if he sees doubt in this vein pra pragmatically as well what is the practical purpose of that kind of behavior well doesn't it produce a a very robust relationship hmm. so Christians we've always known to say that God didn't want robots he wants people that respond genuinely and some of that genuinely involves the sort of roughhouse back and forth that you see in good friends often. Um, they're able to say things to each other that a stranger couldn't say without getting a punch in the nose. And they both laugh about it and acknowledge the tr both the truth of it and the truth beyond it. Yeah. It's a way of talking about the truth beyond it. Yeah, I love that. It just reminds me of a this kind of monumental moment when Jesus says toward the end, I no longer call you servants, you're my friends, which is just a staggering statement um, when you recognize who's saying this. But you treat servants a certain way. Do this, do that, you expect obedience. That's the way most of us, even if we say we don't believe the relationship is supposed to be like that, we functionally, by our behavior, betray that by, by living out that kind of relationship. But this kind of push-pull, rough-and-tumble, that's what friends do. Yes. And, and, it, and if he wants a friendship, it's going to look like a friendship in his mind. 
and a verse that we talked about before we were on on microphone was um when jesus says that uh that you will do greater things than i do <laughs> is just it's wow he so believes in us and and treats us as friends and treats us almost as equals which is just bizarre it's bizarre um people often wonder what those greater things are uh, when he does things like raise people from the dead right. and so on but i think he's thinking of peter and the way that peter at pentecost or or peter at the gate called beautiful is going to be able to speak the word of jesus and have thousands of people change their lives hmm. jesus wasn't in the persuasion business didn't go after large scale conversions he was more about planting seeds i think that what you just said it would be stunning for a lot of people i just want that to sink in a little bit jesus wasn't in the persuasion business oh, yeah. and yet we assume that we are <laughs> uh, well i think to some extent we are we're in a different position to jesus so it's interesting to me that jesus was so successful with telling parables but when you get to the book of acts the disciples who have lots of teaching opportunities never teach in parables they're always straight out but even when they're talking about parables the gospel writers will say that to the crowds he spoke in parables all the time but when he was with his disciples he explained everything yeah in more detail and i think jesus was more more about planting seeds than persuading and part of that part of that probably had to do with how persuasive he could be in this whole not wanting robots business because if he wanted to talk you into buying refrigerators <laughs> forget it you know it's all i over. have never thought of that before that's such an incredible <laughs> insight but, <laughs> but so there's this amazing story which none of us think about it enough and, and don't realize how amazing it is where Jesus has a rare evangelism opportunity with the rich young ruler mm. and the guy comes to him and says what must I do to, to you know and Jesus has the opportunity to explain the gospel to him give him a tract explain the four spiritual laws and convert him to Christianity and the man goes away sad Jesus fails apparently at evangelism if he thought that his goal was to convince this guy that he failed. But I don't think that's his goal. Yeah. I think his goal is to force the guy to make a decision. And you know what? I'm mm. pretty sure we're going to see that guy in heaven. Because I'm pretty <laughs> sure that he's going to be among the people who Peter preached to and said, this guy that you decided wasn't God raised him from the dead and decided he was. Mm. What do you think about that? You better re rethink this question. Because the nature of that encounter sticks with you. Yeah. If you're in the rich young ruler's shoes, you walk away, but you walk away in dissonance and you wrestling. You sad. Yeah. It, the text says he walked away sad. Yeah. So there's something going on in him. So let's 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 turn the corner a little bit here and talk about how doubt has kind of woven itself into our stories. Uh, I've written a lot about doubt, and the, it always pops up in the books that I write because... Um, so much of my life with Jesus is accessed through these cracked windows and doors that are levered open by doubt or disappointment or struggle or confusion. I am Jairus waiting for Jesus to get a move on because my daughter is dying. I mean, we, I don't think we understand the level of, of 
urgency that a father would feel in that moment and to see the person. I mean, I get upset when my wife can't get in the car in time for us to be on that church on time. And his daughter is about to die. And Jesus apparently in a, in a kind of unconcerned way stops to do something else. So we are that person. And I, so that I've written a lot about doubt because it's in those moments where I feel like my soul is cracked open to him in some way. I'm actually desperate and needy and, and not in control. So I'm, I'm wondering how doubt has played a role in your trajectory. Mm, well, let me talk about Jairus first. I'm more interested in the text than I am myself. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious as to what you think since you've written so much about doubt. I see two opportunities in Jairus, which I also see in various ways in my own life. So I'm, I'm sort of answering the question. He has, he has two things to grab hold of. It's got two hands to grab them, so that's convenient. <laughs> One thing is Jesus agreeing with him at the beginning to hold on to something in the past, but something that was genuine. He made eye contact with Jesus, and Jesus remarkably pretty much says in one of the verses in that story in Mark 5, it's almost as if Jesus says, yes, I'll do what you want me to do. Mm -hmm. which is an astounding thing for a Jesus to say. So you hold on to that with one, I'm, I'm, yep. I'm guessing, you hold on to that with one hand, That and, and this has been true in my life as well, that I know there's a time when I knew Jesus was saying yes to me, even though he's not saying anything to me right now. And it's important for me to hold on to that moment and remember that moment and keep that moment alive. Yeah. And with the other hand, Jairus has the opportunity to look at what Je the amazing thing that Jesus is doing with this m woman touching the hem of his garment, that he's acknowledging, appreciating, and restoring to her community by healing her from something that makes her unclean. Mm -hmm. And now she's clean again and is restored to the community. It's remember what Jesus has said to you and hold on to that and be able to rejoice even while he's not doing what do you want him to do for you at the moment? Be able to rejoice in what he is doing at the moment, to look around and see other people who are blessed and rejoice in their blessing rather than, as I usually do, making them think, well, you're helping them, why aren't you helping me? Right, yeah. But to rejoice for them with the other hand, and that is part of being in the relationship with Jesus. Yeah, you know, I, I was just thinking as you're saying this that t tomorrow morning I'm I have a very brief time when I'm speaking to the whole group and um, I'm going to talk very briefly about what I think is the greatest miracle of all that happens in the New Testament, which is a restoration of trust between the Trinity and and His beloved and wow. and I to me that is the greatest miracle because it's the thing that was savagely broken and irreparable. And it's these things that we're talking about right now, these contexts that reestablish what was permanently broken. It's, it's, a, it's, it's not as severe, but it's like the trust that Job expresses at the end of that story. Mm. I knew about you, but now I know you. It's a different level of trust, mm -hmm. which is, in my mind, that it's, it's the kind of trust that the enemy of God wishes would never develop in any of us because it's unassailable. It's saying, like Job said, 
well, even if crap happens to me, I still can't stop trusting your heart. So what are you going to do with that? If you're trying to destroy that, how are you going to destroy it? So I think this is the thing in the end that Jesus is really after is this restoration of trust that he had between Adam and Eve in the very beginning that seems impossible to have anymore. But in these places where we're waiting and he doesn't come on time and he surprisingly yeah. so doesn't, we, we are invited into an opportunity to trust him when everything says we shouldn't trust him. That's great. It reminds me of something that Jay said yesterday and on the stage um, that where you feel resistance, that's a good thing. Yes. And that yes. the things that we've been talking about, the delay that can breed doubt and the roughness of Jesus that can sometimes breed doubt, those feel like resistance that you have to push through. And I, I think it was Jay who said that if yes. you go to the gym and you've been lifting weights and you haven't felt any resistance, you ain't doing it right and you're not going to get any stronger or grow any from it. Yeah. And so I, I, I'm sure you're onto something that it's this going through this the resistance, the hard times that produce the kind of faith that the enemy just sees. And uh, what am I going to do with that? Yeah. Yeah. So, and by the way, uh, Conrad's referencing Jay Pathak, who we're also going to have on uh, later this afternoon. I'll record uh, an interview with, with Jay and, and that'll be a treat as well. So Conrad, the, the last thing I wanted to, to kind of push into a little bit is, so you and I are both, you know, we're used to being in front of people you every day in front of students and and you're in a position of uh, where you're a, a teacher and you're unpacking stuff for people and you're helping them to see things in the way that they haven't seen before it creates a kind of dynamic with people that that I think can be a kind of a latent pressure for us to have it all together and to have a kind of a certainty about us in fact the people that are up on the stage the more certain they are, the more comfortable we feel listening to them, if that makes sense. And so it kind of kind of siphons away this kind of freedom to wrestle out with stuff. And I'm just wondering how you have felt that in the midst of what you do, because it, it seems to to put the the the, the kibosh on um, on wrestling through your own doubts in front of people. I think it's very important for Christian leaders to be able to be vulnerable tactically. Hmm. I, I think it is wrong to go up and say, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. That's not helpful to anybody. There are times when you know what you should believe. And it's important to talk about what you should believe with the certainty that you have that you should believe it. If you're having trouble believing it at the time, there usually are opportunities to show that vulnerability. Hmm. And I've pretty much made a teaching career of finding places in lectures or in talking with students where I can say, you know, I don't really know the answer to that. Or I'm finding trouble dealing with this. What do you think? That throws it on other people to, to share in a relationship. One of the one of the problems about our Western Christianity over the past, the, the, the Christianity that I grew up with, was that it was seen almost entirely with me and my Lord, me and Jesus. Yes. Uh huh. And throwing that relationship into a community 
in our culture is really helpful. Jesus had the opposite problem. They were such a community-oriented culture that he had to go out of his way to say, no, the individual response is important. I think we have to go the other way. And so the times that my students probably have learned the most from me is when I've said, I'm not sure. What do you think? Or I can't feel this. Can any of you help me? Yeah. And listen to their testimonies yeah. or to their wisdom. Yeah, that's good. So um, amidst all of the things that I've asked you, there may be something about this whole issue of doubt relative to Jesus in the way that he related with people that I've not asked you about. Is there something that kind of sits there still like a PS that you think is important to to address or to focus on with this whole issue that I haven't yet kind of pried out of you? I think the only thing that I feel like we haven't explored is I want to hear more about what you think about doubt. And I've talked about the two <laughs> things that, that I saw Jairus could grab onto. Is there something else that I should be, that isn't in that story that people who are doubting should be holding on to as well? Well, I thought one of the things that was fascinating is that, and, and it's so true that you connected this story to the story of the raising of Lazarus, where Jesus twice delays for different reasons on purpose. He's not stupid. He's well aware of what's going to happen if he delays. And he delays in both cases. He hurts people. I mean, this, this is where he's dangerous. He consciously understands that if I delay, people I love will be hurt and they'll be in confusion and they won't understand this and they'll have bad feelings about me and they'll, of course, distrust me because I'm delaying right now. And I, I thought that was fascinating that you, you connected these two stories because I put myself in these stories in the shoes of Jairus and the shoes of Martha, who's refreshingly angry when yeah. Jesus shows up late. Yeah. She, she does what a healthy person should do. She expresses her anger and frustration over what obviously has happened. And the way Jesus responds to her is not to um, defend himself or to judge what she's done, but to sort of declare himself. I mean, he, he says, I am the resurrection. I'm not the path to it. I'm not uh, a leverage toward it. It, it's, it must it must have been a bizarre thing for the for Martha actually listening to Jesus say this because she can reach out and touch him, and he's saying, "I'm not the path to the resurrection. I am it. Wherever I am, there's life. What would that be like to believe that?" Because he says in the end, "There, do you believe this?" Which is, and she says, "Yes." Which again, I mean, Martha is a hero. Yes. To be in that situation and to say yes at the end of it is a heroic statement. So there's something happening in these stories that is high risk on Jesus' part. And that's what scares me uh, to some level. Uh -huh. And there's also high reward because what is he going after in these encounters? What is his end game in these encounters? I guess that's that's how I'll leave it for you. What do you think is his end game? Well, I, I, I think it's clear it's... It's this robust relationship that is friend as much as anything else. Yeah. That we have a, a clear sense, of course, that he's God and we're nothing. But within that, we can also be friends. It's just amazing and seems to be something that he's wanted from the very beginning. From the very beginning. And, and he has figured out a way, because he's shrewd, to leverage the impossible in us and we're 
I, I, I sometimes think uh, when we hear that, when Jesus says, you'll do the things I did and greater things, I just don't think we, we see in the right categories sometimes of the things that we are actually doing. Yeah. That from Jesus's perspective, he's like going, oh my gosh, he's elbowing those around him. <laughs> did you see that? It's a remarkable uh, uh, insight into the greater things that we maybe don't see so well because we know our own story and our own narrative and and we have a lot of self-doubt but i think there are things that we do that show great trust when trust is the one thing we shouldn't have but they show great trust in him and i think these are the things that are celebrated he uh, loves them. yeah, yeah. I agree. well listeners thanks for listening today and uh, remember you can find out more about the things we talked about here today but in further detail on the jesuscenteredlife.com Website. You can find our podcast section. You're going to be looking for Season 2, Episode 28. And by the way, we'll put a, a link to uh, Conrad on here. If You certainly should check out everything that Conrad has written. I'm right now in the middle of reading. Well, I think it must be, uh, it was either one of the first books you wrote or, uh, or the first book you wrote called Jesus Asked. I can't believe one. I'm only reading it now, but my wife and I are reading Jesus Asked right now. Please... Um, Go out and grab whatever Conrad has written. Um, we'll put a link to it on our site so that you can do that easily. And remember, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts. We'll talk again next time. <laughs>